So this week we're looking at uh, reconciling people with God and all creation as one of the, the pillar values of the vineyard. The verse that will kind of sum up everything, I could almost read this verse and just say, all right, done, see ya next week, is this. And we'll be talking about this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this is out of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what do we mean by reconcile? What does that even mean? What are we referring to? Well, um, the, the word used for reconcile in scripture, if we were to look at its you know, context 2,000 years ago when it was written around and other literature from its period, it, the best way to say it is the exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. The exchange of hostility, of you know, clashing hostility for a friendly relationship. The sum of it is God has reconciled us to himself, meaning before we are reconciled to him, before um, we are Christians and before we met Jesus, there was hostility between us and God. There was hostility. There was not a friendliness because sin was present. There was a breach in relationship from the very beginning before we knew Jesus. Now, I don't know if, if, if many of you have experienced a breach of relationship before whether family, whether someone who uh, very close to you whom should have been a trusted companion and turned out not to be. Many of you are kind of nodding your heads. It's one of the most painful things, I believe, on this earth that we can go through is when that one person or that group of people or whoever it may be that you, th- you didn't just think you could trust him, you kind of lived your life in such a way that depended on their trust. And when that gets betrayed, that's pain. That's a wound that's very difficult to actually recover because it starts affecting your trust of others around you. It's, it's one of the most painful things we can go through in our human experience. But we can talk about the breach of relationships and the need for reconciliation. We can blame it all on sin. We can blame it all, honestly, on the devil's work, which is here to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he wants to destroy relationships on this earth, especially between us and God, but also by, um, you know, branching out of that between us and others. And so I wanted to define, what do we mean by sin? If sin is to blame, how do we define sin? It really, uh, one theologian describes it like this, which I think is simple, and it, it really gets to the heart of how the Bible talks about sin. Sin is the act that creates a broken relationship between God and humanity. Simple as that. Sin is the act that creates a broken relationship between God and humanity. And when that relationship is broken, it's broken as it goes out here in this world between us. Uh, Cornelius Plantiga, another uh, Christian author, he, he defined it like this. He said, sin is culpable shalom breaking. Shalom meaning peace, wholeness, the biblical vision of everything made right. He says, sin is shalom breaking. Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities 
and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. It's a really good, colorful definition of sin. So sin is just, it's way more than just personal failure, personal moral failure. I grew up in the tradition that really talked about sin as like what I did wrong and what I did bad and I should stop doing the bad stuff and stop being a sinner. And that's true, like when you fall short personally, that's sin. That's kind of a different sermon today. We're really kind of focusing on the, the relational piece because even when I morally sin, that affects the people around me, right? My sins in life, my family are going to experience the side effects of that. There's no such thing as a personal sin that only affects you. It's a myth. That's a myth. Your sin in life affects those around you. Sin is highly relational. It is deeply relational in its effects. So, um, yeah, in in Adam and Eve's case, we see this. We see this in the case of when leaders fail, right? There's relational damage that come, kings or queens. um, All across the board, uh, when, when people sin, other people in your life are affected. But it's also structural. It's also can be, uh, sin can be institutional, meaning this. A little story I read this week about a guy who once got a little infection in his toe. Ignored it, not a big deal. It'll heal itself. And until that toe's infection got into his bloodstream and it turned into sepsis, Sepsis, yeah, into, into the bloodstream, the whole body, suddenly his life was in danger. But it began like a little infection on his toe. But his whole bodily system got infected. And this can happen too in institutions when people sins like this. It can impact an institution and then sin becomes systemic within that institution. Buried, it can be buried into the very um, uh, 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 inside of that institution. Because when people are involved, people are broken in that institution. Uh, They're hurt, they're harmed, and they're sinned against over time. And the need for reconciliation in those contexts becomes very complex. It become like a generational work to work on because it's not so much a person that you can say that person's to blame, it's a system that's to blame. And how do you bring healing to that? And so we see that reconciliation becomes a complex topic as we dive into this in scripture. It's a really, really big deal. Um, Everything from friendships to marriages to entire um, um, ethnic groups relating to each other, um, government to its people. Um, Reconciliation involves all these conversations, but at its core, it's a sin problem. And we just read that it is the mission of God in this world. Like, we just read a verse that said, God right now, his work in this world is reconciling the world through Christ back to himself. So the work that we're talking about is God's work. And we're going to talk about his commitment that he committed to us. He, he, he committed his work to us. And we'll talk about that at the end of our time today. So there's first four things we're going to look at today of reconciliation. Number one, we're going to, this is the roadmap for today. Judy tells me that I need to give roadmaps like this more often, so I do what Judy says. Thank you, Judy. I don't know if she's here or not. Reconciliation to God, reconciliation to self, reconciliation to one another, and then 
our, commit, our, our participation in God's ministry of reconciliation in Christ. I forgot how I phrased it up there, whatever I said. Read that. Okay, so let's dive into this. The first point here, it begins, how do we, what does reconciliation begin? Well, it first begins with reconciliation to God. And closely related to this is reconciliation to self. Let me break this down. These are two kind of, you know, together points here. This, this text we're looking at comes out of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11 through 21. It will be on the screen behind us. If you want to follow along in the Red Pew Bible, it is on page 1144, um, beginning in verse 11. So this is the word of the Lord. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. This is the the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Corinth. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Uh, You can take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of mind, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So first, to reiterate this over and over again, it is Jesus Christ who paid for sin in his death. And what drove him to such a sacrifice was love. Love for whom? Love for his Lord, his Father, and love for us. Isaiah 59 is very clear. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Isaiah 59 verse 12. Iniquities have separated you from God. This reality of how Christ's work has reconciled us to God will be woven in in our whole sermon today. But this idea of being reconciled to God, self and others, uh, it's the same conversation. Like I I struggle to even want to divide it up because you can't have one without really having the other. But I do want to talk about this idea of being reconciled to God, which results in being reconciled to self. It's really interesting. So in in this letter, um, the context of his words, Paul's words that he wrote down here, are people in this, in this church at Corinth that were comparing him because he left to go start other churches and other leaders kind of came in. And these other leaders um, spoke better than Paul. They were bigger personalities than him. In some cases, probably even led better than he did. And people were like, oh, this guy Paul, like, uh, not a big deal after all. But these leaders weren't quite walking in the Jesus way or weren't, weren't quite preaching the Jesus gospel. And Paul says, like, ah, these, these aren't the guys, fellas. Like, yeah, you, you, you need to be careful in whom you're, you're, um, you're following here. And they were comparing Paul and them. And in verse 11, Paul says, what we are, him and his companions who originally started this church, he says, what we are is plain to God and hopefully also to your own Conscience, And in my summary of Paul's words, he, he says this, I don't want to have to defend myself to you again, commend myself to you again. I want you to look at the heart, what is within and not on the outside like some of these leaders are doing. But listen to what he says. He says, look, if I'm out of my mind, it's for the sake of God. If, in other words, if I'm acting like a crazy person, it's because my life belongs to God. But if I'm acting my right mind, it's because I have to talk to you. 
I have to communicate to you. He said, regardless, it's Christ's love, verse 14, compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. There's some background noise going on in Paul's words. Paul is at peace with himself, and it's evidenced in these scriptures. What do I mean by that? He says, that, you know, if I'm going crazy, it's because I know that I fully belong to God. But I know that, you know, you're not ready for that kind of devotion to him yet. So I have to kind of, you know, speak to you a little more sensibly to, to, to disciple you and to walk you in there. It's getting darker, right? It's getting more um, ambiance in here. He, he says, you know, I have to do those two things. But if you look at that, what, what is it saying? He, Paul is very comfortable with who he is. He's saying, I, I don't exactly care of your thoughts about Paul. Like, I, I don't care your critique of me. He says, it's the love of Christ that compels anything that I do. It is Christ that compels me. So what you think that I am or how I act in front of you, like, it's love for Christ that compels me, not the love that, or who you want me to be or who you wish that I was that compels me. That doesn't, that doesn't drive me. So what does that mean? It means that when you're reconciled to God, there's a reconciliation to self that happens that says, I've... I'm actually comfortable in my own skin now because I know who I am. I know the one who died for me. I know he loves me. I know what he went through. The author of life himself died to rescue me and reconcile me back to my God, my Father. Therefore, I am in his image. I am his child. I am his daughter. I am his son. I don't care what you think about me. He's reconciled to himself. This is something that, that our, our culture today is, is desperately on the, the hunt for, right? Um, uh, as, as I get older, right, I'm able to identify these things in my own life more because for Christians, there's an already aspect of being reconciled to God and then there's the project, the reality of him continually reconciling us to him, right? And so in that process, I, I've learned in my own life, right, if... if for example, like the parts that I'm not reconciled to, like to myself yet, is when I find arrogance in my heart, where I want to maybe make something about me inside of a room, or like I want people to to perceive me as like this X Y Z certain guy, so that people might like me more. I'm a people pleaser. I love people liking me, and that can drive me to want to live for the approval of others. And many of you, I know fall into that same category, right? And so who, what drives your life then? It's, it, you're still believing at some core, if that's you this morning, that, that you, you need some further definition of who you are, and that's the approval of others, not the love that Christ has for you. And so you're living for, for that instead of Christ. You're not at peace yet within you haven't really embraced, a, you're still in the hunt to fully experience the fullness of Christ's work in your life if you still fall into living for the approval of others, which we know will never be enough in our life. Because those people aren't God, right? You have God's approval. It is an eternal approval. It cannot be revoked, right? You belong to him. That's that first reconciliation that happens. We're reconciled to God. We need to experience reconciliation to our own self. And this continues on. There's so much more I could say about that. That we need to be reconciled to others. 
Listen to this in verse 16 as he continues on. From, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we no longer do so. Being reconciled to God means that your understanding of other human beings now has fundamentally changed. Paul even says, before Christ, I had a very worldly view of him. You know, as, as some criminal who started up a rabble and started this like, you know, this, this movement that we just needed to shut down before he realized, oh, he, he is the son of God. He did rise from the dead. Okay, now I know that he is Lord. So Paul says, you know, we, we don't regard anyone from a worldly point of view. That's what they were doing from these other leaders, a worldly point of view, their charisma, their big personalities, their ability to speak and so forth. Paul says, we don't play that game, guys. We don't play that game. What is a worldly point of view? This has to do with the ministry of reconciliation, as we'll see. Um, worldly for Paul really refers to the world's, literally, way and systems of thinking of values apart from Christ, apart from his redemption, apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives. So what is this worldly point of view? So I, I want to walk through a, a couple of things and, and lay a foundation and start, I want you to think of like overlapping circles when it comes to this conversation because many circles begin overlapping when it comes to um, um, our, the others in our life. But the, um, the, the, the first the first circle here when it comes to our relationship with, with others um, is uh, it really comes from Acts 17, verse 26. And there's other scriptures we could use as well. But listen to this. It says, from one man he made every nation of man that they should inhabit the whole earth. That's where it started, okay? I know it's a kind of a saying, like, we're all human beings. But, like, seriously, though, we, we really are. Um, when we think of others, we realize we, we all have a common ancestor and we all have a common God, a common author whose fingerprints, in a general sense, right, in terms of us as any human being in the image of God, we all carry the fingerprints and thumbprints of God on our life. All of us, male, female, the man and the, the woman at the very beginning, right, the female is even drawn from Adam's side, showing the unity and harmony even between the genders before sin. It is true that all humanity came from, um, from Adam and came from Eve. But as we sinned and broke relationship between God, Adam and Eve themselves experienced relational brokenness between each other. I mean, if you know the story, right, when, when God approached Adam after they ate the fruit, what was the first thing he said? Did he say, you're right, I'm guilty. Look what I did. No, he said, that woman that you gave me, Lord, like that's, that's on you, God. You gave me her. She did it. Okay, boom. Try that in any kind of, you know, relationship, marriage context, you know. Does that go well for the relationship? I don't think so, okay? Adam's off to a bad start, but this is the result of sin. The woman was then approached. Did she say, oh, yeah, you're right. Look what I did. I'm so sorry. No. It, it was a serpent. It was, I was deceived. It was, it was him. It was a serpent that tricked me. And so they're automatically just, you know, uh, kicking off blame, blaming all on the other person and avoiding accepting responsibility. And as God kind of started calling down the curses of sin... 
In 3.16, Genesis 3.16, he says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and child rearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Some translations say she will desire to rule over him, but he will rule over you. Others say that um, she'll want to please her husband, but he will load it, lord it over her. There's a lot of tricky nuances here to try to get into English, but what's really at its core communicating is they're both going to start doing this. That's what, at its core, what it means. They're going to find now friction and relational challenges in their relationship because of sin. They're going to get each other's nerves at minimum, but what's really being spoken of is they're going to realize they're going to have two different agendas often. And they're both agendas are going to start clashing and they're going to experience relational disharmony. Now that's in a context of a, you know, kind of a marriage relationship, but that's also speaking of uh, uh, much larger in humanity as a whole, because what did Adam and Eve's children do? Did they get along great? No. What happened with Cain and Abel? It didn't go very well in their relationship either, right? This harmony disrupted, uh, sin disrupted all of these relationships. For all of history, sin has broken relationship between um, one another. So I want to talk about some barriers in modern times. Really, it's been throughout all of history, but let's talk about some of these barriers, worldly ways of thinking of others that are present in our modern context. Yes, some of these are hot button topics, but they're hot because they're real, and we need to talk about them because they are barriers. Number one, is really, we can just say communication and languages. Languages are actually a curse from God. Read Genesis 11, see how that went down. Um, humans now are separated by languages. There's been lots of even movies and things wrote just to, uh, made to kind of show just the, the strong barrier of, of two different languages and people unable to even work together and communicate. It's, it's crazy how much language um, can, can be a barrier but, um, uh, between people, but that's birth out of sin. Um, race. Did you know that race itself is a social construct? And hear me out, this is a barrier here. It's something over time created by whoever was in charge to identify other groups of people who may have had different characteristics of them, whether skin color, bodily features, etc., that were perceived to be inferior to them. Race is not something biological. Um, Latinos do not have different genes than white people or black people, right? Um, race has been used throughout history to just categorize people, often by those who are in charge and have the most power. And so then they say, well, let's find a label to, to, you know, call this group of people over here so we can exercise control over them. Um, our racial labels in America, if you actually read this about Brazil, who we think of as white or black or et cetera in America, is not white or black or et cetera in Brazil. Like, how does that work? Because it's a, it's a culture that decides races. It's an interesting thing to look into, but the reality is race is a, a barrier created by people essentially to divide and to exercise power over those perceived to be weak. Ethnicity, however, is something beautiful created by God. As scriptures testify, Acts 16 testifies, God places everyone in the nations and boundaries they live. The diversity of humanity is actually an intentional design of God that should be embraced as beautiful. We'll get to some of that later. But many scholars agree that race could be understood as just an artificial category to help the stronger be more strong and the weaker be more weak. We also have gender as a barrier. 
Must we even mention that it wasn't even a hundred years, it was a little more than a hundred years ago, women couldn't even vote in our country, right? Which is a crazy thought to read about the women's suffrage movement and what they had to go through just to be able to vote in our country, right? We have all these deep cultural stereotypes between men and women that just in our nation continue to divide, right? Um, create animosity between the gender. We can, go, we can go on and on about all these barriers when it comes to our relationship with others and how sin has crept in there and caused division. These are all worldly ways, can be worldly ways in which humanity has learned to interact with each other that has only created division. And it's led to things like broken families, devastation to entire communities, after generation after generation. Now we know it's given birth to racism, to systemic racism, and war between two ethnic groups and countries have fought, right? So in the smallest of relationships to the largest, okay, think of circles, small circle keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We know that reconciliation affects all the sins, affects all those things, and in all those areas, reconciliation is needed. Now, I truly firmly believe only in Christ can these worldly ways in which we regard one another be made whole? I'm here to say that this whole, uh, as the world gets smaller, right, as information travels and, and, and airplanes can zoom around the world so much faster and cheaper and globalization is taking place, right, we, we see this happening. Um, I'm not sure it's going to work out because of sin, right? I'm not sure if America and this multi-ethnic um, project is going to actually work out because of sin, but in Christ, there is a multi-ethnic project that has been a raging success. John got a glimpse of it, right? The veil was kind of pulled back and he got a glimpse of it in heaven. Acts, uh, Revelation chapter seven, look at these verses. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. It works in heaven because sin is gone and Christ is Lord and all of his image bearers are now gathered before him. They're not blended into a monoethic pot, right? They're all still visibly as John saw them. Oh, this is like people from all around the world, from all the different nations and countries and continents. And they're together. And it's Christ who reconciled them and now has brought them together. I don't know how the, how the answer that's why I have nothing, I don't want to do with politics. Right? I don't know the answer. Like, how does a nation solve these, these relational problems? I don't know. Because apart from Christ, I don't know how you do it. We need to deal with our sin to do this. And only in Christ is sin dealt with. But the question is, have you participated in any of these things yourself? In your own life, have you contributed to attitudes or patterns towards other ethnicities, toward the other gender, towards other people, groups, and et cetera, that maybe stereotype or pit um, you know, them as up against you, like the us and them mentality. Like, have you participated in these things? And I want you to be honest about that and just ask yourself that question. Whether side comments made in quiet, alone, or with other people, when certain other people aren't around, like just in small, are, have you participated in these things? 
Because this stuff comes from sin, friends. It's not a joke. It's not to be taken lightly. And in our country, some of these conversations have been, just been normalized for centuries. And it's time to unnormalize them, call them sin, or they need to be called sin, repent of those things, and as a church, be the light of the gospel in a place where our nation has continually failed in this area. You guys track with me this morning? You guys here this morning? Okay. And lastly, doing the work of reconciliation. This is when stuff gets real, all right? Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. I take it back. We are all in politics, the politics of Christ's kingdom. And you have a role, which is an ambassador, a representative of his kingdom to this world. We're wrapped up in his politics, right? The best kind. So here's where things get real. This ministry of reconciliation, it belongs to God. That's the first thing to note here. It's not yours, it belongs to God. It was initiated by God, and we receive it in faith. It is the work of Christ. It is not the power that we have in our own strength. It is his power through his spirit that he can bring about through his people and his church. Reconciliation is the agenda of God in this world to bring people back to himself from all walks of life on every continent. Human beings are his people as image bearers. And he has opened up the possibility for the removal of sins, the forgiveness of sins. So this has been committed to us. And I want to talk about those kind of circles as we are on the back end of our sermon today. It begins with being reconciled to self, right? Consider this. This is a ministry of reconciliation. And one person cannot say, I've been made right with Christ. I'm loved, forgiven, and accepted in him. No matter what I do or fail to do, who I am before God doesn't change. I am his. He is mine. Yes. And in your life and actions, you're still living for the approval of others. Those two things shouldn't be, Right? Engage in the ministry of reconciliation, and it begins inside of you. See how this works. Others in life. Remember how I said that being reconciled to God, self, and others is really the same conversation. That it shouldn't really be a reality that no one can say, you know, I am reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, by the forgiveness offered to me. And another breath say, I refuse to talk to that person because of what they did to me. It's not how it works. Engage in the ministry of reconciliation and seek to be reconciled to that person who offended you, right? Even if they don't cast any mutual forgiveness to you, seek to be, at least in your heart, made right before that person, knowing I need to learn to forgive that person. These are overlapping circles because we all still participate in the broader, systemic, and more cultural and generational needs of reconciliation and in the city of Wilmington itself. If this ministry is spreading the good news of Jesus, this ministry of reconciliation is committed to our church, as it is all churches, to Emmanuel Church. I asked my I asked the question, like, what does it mean for our church as a church family to engage in the ministry of reconciliation? What does that look like? 
Well, we're in Wilmington, Delaware, and I, uh, my first thought was, what is the story of Wilmington? Like, what's the story of the city that we are in? We have been in for 150 years as a church. What is the story of Wilmington? Because we all know the city is in great need of the ministry of reconciliation, in great need of the ministry that belongs to God through his church to experience the ministry of reconciliation. Um, a lot of the story of Wilmington has to do with white and black and ethnic groups clashing in about 20 year period, the city drastically changed. I'm gonna talk about that and how it still affected modern times. Um, this sort of clashing in people groups is nothing new, just to say, if you read the book of Romans, start backwards in the, best, the last four or five chapters in the book of Romans, you'll see the whole book is about two ethnic groups, Christians doing this. That's why Paul wrote the book, okay? These kind of struggles are nothing new. They are in scripture commonly and often. But because of our geography as a church, we need to just briefly, let me just share the history of Wilmington, okay? In 1950, 110,000 people lived in the city of Wilmington. By 1970, 80,000. Almost one out of four people left city limits within a 20 year period. What in the world happened? Like if you see that on paper, you would say, huh, what happened? What is this flight of population from the city of Wilmington that even today we're only down to 70,000, we still haven't recovered. Like, what is this? What's going on? Well, uh, to be brief, you have many things. In 54, it really started with the desegregation of schools. You had the interstate plow right through the city, which opened up access to suburbia, shut down small businesses. You had GI bills that helped um, white veterans, but not black veterans. And so the, these, this housing that could be af afforded and subsidized by the government started helping the white population, but left the black population a little behind. And so when businesses left the city, interstate came through, all the business leaders left, all the business owners started leaving. And then you had uh, empty housing that lost value, that plummeted in value. Some people couldn't leave, and therefore they got stuck in plummeting valued neighborhoods. And then you had, of course, in 1968, you had MLK assassinated. Two days of rioting in our city met with nine months of the National Guard occupying our city. Two days of rioting, nine months of the Marshall uh, National Guard, like, walking the streets of our city, okay? And so people... New residents, come move to our city. I don't know. I saw on TV, like, the army is walking your street, like, every day. I don't think I want to move there, right? I don't think I want to move to that city. And so that happened, right? So what's the result today? We have many deeply impoverished neighborhoods that, of course, anywhere in the country where impoverished neighborhoods are found, you have drug abuse, you have addictions, you have utter brokenness, you have crime, et cetera, and so forth. It impacts every impoverished community. But this is the story of Wilmington, just in brief. So much more could be said. This is where we are, right? What do we do as a church? Like, this stuff has still affected our city today. We're still having a hard time getting the city up on its two feet, even 50 years later. What do we do as a church? Well, here's some, some things I think that we can do, okay, as a church. We need to be truly about Jesus first. Like, we need to make sure that we are existing for Jesus and Jesus alone, and even not for the sake of our own institution as a church, not for the sake of Emmanuel or its name or its legacy or its history. We need to exist for Jesus and Jesus alone because our witness of the ministry of reconciliation begins with our own witness. You guys tracking? C, 
Secondly, we are reconciled to one another in these walls. Everything from relational strife within this church community needs to discover the beauty of forgiveness. We need to give each other the benefit of the doubt if miscommunication happens. We need to have leaders across all spectrums, from elders to ministry leaders who don't lord any office of their you know, leadership over others. Transparency across the board, relational between leaders in the church, not distant, and even with one another. Don't be relationally distant from your church family. We need to exist in a genuine family, a genuine community of Christ here, even outside of Sunday mornings. All these things need to describe it. So when people come and they say, what is this church? Who, we, who are we about? They discover these things. Because this is a healing balm. This is a, the, 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 the witness of the ministry reconciliation between our own church family. And we move out to the larger circles that we are a church that can truly be a home for all and any and all ethnicities represented in Wilmington around our community that surrounds us. That anyone who meets Jesus receives a salvation and can be a brother and sister here at the table with us. This is the very thing that's checkered Wilmington's past And I believe that we can shine the light of reconciliation here in our own church family for the city to see. Jesus said on earth as it is in heaven, we want that to be true here at our church. I've talked about this before, right? How do we become a reconciling church, right? How do we do the ministry reconciliation? Um, It's practical things. We need to resist a monoculture here at the church. We need to resist a monoculture here. Be open to other cultural expressions of the worship of Jesus. Um, If the Lord raises up leaders here that represent the different ethnic groups that surround our church, we pray, Lord, raise leaders up that we can help us engage the people that he has given us the privilege to share the gospel with around our building. Lord, raise up leaders from all of these groups to be able to be represented here at our church. We also need to consider you know, just to reemphasize just how here, like, are we relating to one another? Are, are various ethnic groups here within our own community truly living life together? Are we sharing meals together? Are we really living, doing the, 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 the real life-to-life kind of living together? Because I believe we will naturally fall into the conditioning if we're not careful, because this is so common if we don't intentionally pursue and, and breach over those, those differences we have, even within our own church family, that we'll just be conditioned to say us versus them all over again. In Christ, we become us. And we know in heaven, all the various people groups are celebrated before God as representing his own plurality in the Trinity, his beauty of his creation. And so we become us and we celebrate one another, we give space for one another in this congregation, and we worship Jesus together. Um, man, I'm preaching a long sermon today, aren't I? Um, so I, I'm going I'm to share one story, then we're going to close. Is that okay? We're not almost going to close. So there is a church that did this, all right? that um, that really knew the story of their own context and said, we have the ministry reconciliation. What do we do? What do we do? Check this out. The first time in the town of, I don't know, German, Tubingen, Germany, expelled, um, the first time this city in Germany, Tubingen, expelled all of its Jewish residents was in 1477. 
okay? It soon became a place where anti-Jewish doctrines thrived, especially, of course, during World War II. Today, however, this is a couple years ago, the Jerusalem Post reports that not only has a tiny Jewish community returned to this town, that's brave of them, right? But there also exists the Tubigan Offensive Stad Mission Church. This church has about 250 members, and each of its members possessed a heartfelt love for the Jewish people. The church meets in a large tent on top of the same railroad tracks that once deported Jews from the city to concentration camps in Germany or Poland. They chose that place to meet. The mission of the church is to confess and repent of the sins of their forefathers and to engage in the ministry of reconciliation to their Jewish neighbors. 2007, this church organized a march of life to coincide with Holocaust Remembrance Day. Their march, which covered roughly 350 kilometers, followed the, many route, the, the same route many Jews walked to their death in 1945, just before World War II ended. They had a special meeting the night before. Four members stood before the assembly and told stories of their own family's participation in the Nazi regime. One woman who now sings in the church worship group had recently discovered that her grandfather was an SS guard who beat Jews and other prisoners. She and three others then followed the example of Jesus by humbly washing the feet of several Jewish guests, some who were Holocaust survivors. The Jewish guests symbolized their forgiveness by washing the feet of their German hosts. Rose Price, a survivor of six concentration camps, embraced and comforted several Germans who broke into tears. One leader, Stefan Ahrens, said that the march had achieved the goal of confronting the memories of the past and talking about them and breaking the veil of silence. A man from Syria witnessed the event and observed longingly that if Germans and Jews could be reconciled, the same model might also work between Arabs and Jews. See how that works? They understood where they were, their context. They said, what can we, how can we shine the light of Christ where we are? And they tried. They did something, right? They brought the ministry of reconciliation to their context. All this can be summed up in closing words. How do we do all this? Well, it begins with, 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 with Paul imploring us. I'm going to call the worship team up um, at this time. Um, call Jeff Powell Jr. up as well. Um, Paul ends this section saying, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him, Jesus, he made him who had no sin to be sin in order for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The call is the same. All this begins with a question. Are you right with God? Are you reconciled to God this morning?